Heavenly Father, we do need you this morning, and we pray that you would teach us your statutes, that you would enlarge our hearts, that you would strengthen us, strengthen us according to your word. We believe, Lord, that you will do this. We believe that this is the ministry of the Spirit, to illuminate the word of God and apply it to the hearts of the people of God. So, God, we come in faith, um, expressing our need, fully expecting that you will speak. I pray for your help now. Give me strength and a clear mind and a strong voice. Give us eager hearts, soft hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our mission as a church, which we've been discussing the last this month, is that we exist to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus. We took one whole week just to unpack what we mean by that statement. And then last week, we began examining the various values that we hold as a church. If we're going to be faithful to this mission, there are several key values that we must embrace. So two weeks ago, we examined the necessity of keeping the gospel central in the life and worship and ministry of the church. The truth of Christ's death and resurrection is the heartbeat. That's right at the center of who we are, what we believe, and what we do. It's the theological truth that shapes our motives. It's the truth that forms our mindset. It strengthens our faith. It unites us together. It energizes our mission. We, we find all of those things in the gospel. So we must remember it and meditate on it and sing it and pray it and preach it and defend it and share it. So that's the first value we looked at last week. But today I want to talk about another crucial value. If we're going to glorify God, By being and making disciples of Jesus, it is crucial that we be committed to the scriptures, that the scriptures have the highest place of authority, that the scriptures have prominence, and that they are central to the worship of the church. Coming out of the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, one of the doctrines that became a dividing line for those who were pulling away from the Roman Catholic Church was the idea of sola scriptura, or scripture alone. And much like those reformers of the 1500s, it is our conviction today, here in this church, that scripture, not tradition, not church leaders, not our own experience, not human philosophy, not cultural consensus, but scripture alone is the ultimate and highest authority in the church. So as we consider the priority of scripture... I want us to look in 2 Timothy because we are greatly helped by Paul's writings to this young pastor, this man named Timothy. He had been tasked with shepherding the church at Ephesus. And among Paul's many exhortations and encouragements, we find perhaps the most clear and compelling teaching on the place that Scripture should have in the life of the church. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll be reading all the way through chapter 4, verse 5. If you're following along with me, those little numbers in black, and even the big number, the number four, keep in mind those weren't in the original letter that Paul wrote. So just kind of ignore those, and let's try to get the whole thought as it continues out of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. Verse 14, Paul says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been equated with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul gives a barrage of instructions to this young man named Timothy. And it culminates with this summary command in verse 5 of chapter 4. Fulfill your ministry. At the core, the ministry that Timothy was engaged in is the same ministry that we are engaged in today. It was the ministry of the gospel. It was the making of disciples. It was the growth and maturity of the church. It was the proclamation and preservation of the truth. And in all of Timothy's efforts, the word of God, Paul says, is to be held up as authoritative and necessary and sufficient. I'd like to share with you this morning four requirements for fulfilling our ministry. They were the requirements that Paul laid out for Timothy, and they apply just as much to us today. And the first we find in verses 14 through 15 of chapter 3, fulfilling your ministry requires, number one, believing the truth of Scripture. Believing the truth of Scripture. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul's exhortation is continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Timothy had been taught by his mother and his grandmother since childhood, and he had been instructed by Paul as an adult. And what he had learned, Paul points out, he had personally, firmly believed. This was not just a passive agreement, you know, the sort of agreement that says, sure, mom, sure, grandma, sure, you know, impressive leader with a forceful personality. I don't disagree with what you're telling me. I'm fine with that. It wasn't that kind of belief. No, this is a deep personal conviction. Timothy had taken ownership of what he had been taught. The NASB translates it that he had become convinced of the things that Scripture teaches. Believing the truth of Scripture is essential to salvation itself. Paul points out that it's in believing the scripture that Timothy had become wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul's not saying that we're saved through wisdom. We're saved through faith. He says that in the very next breath. But it's the height of foolishness to reject Christ and not believe. And it is the essence of wisdom to fear God and to believe his gospel. So Paul is urging Timothy to continue in these things, literally to remain in the faith. When he says continue in what you've learned, it's to remain firmly planted in the exact place you are right now, having learned these things, received them, and having personally believed in the truth of Scripture. The sad reality is that such exhortations are necessary because some people do not continue believing. 
there are some who do not remain in the faith. We all know people who at one time professed to believe, but who no longer do. And we know that salvation is not something that can be lost. But some who do not have genuine faith, who appear to believe for a time, will eventually fall away. And it will be proven that their faith was never genuine in the first place. Scripture offers several sad examples of such unbelief. And we all have stories we could tell as well. But fulfilling your ministry, if Timothy is going to follow through with the calling God has given him and the task that Paul has entrusted him with, he has to keep believing the truth of Scripture. To fulfill our ministry requires that we trust God's Word, that we trust what it tells us more than we trust our own doubts, more than we trust the world's accusations and claims to truth. It may seem elementary and it may seem obvious, But what could possibly compel us to go into the world and make disciples if we don't wholeheartedly believe what the Bible says? If you don't believe in the scriptures, then what do you have to offer to those who are outside? Nothing more than what they already have, which is personal opinions and perspectives that have no more power and authority than anybody else's personal opinion and perspective. Years ago, I came across a clip from one of those TV hospital dramas, and it has this scene where there's a man who's dying of cancer, and he's laying on the bed in the hospital, and he's desperate to see a chaplain. But the woman who arrives to counsel him has no real truth to offer. The dying man on the table says, I don't want to go on. Can't you see I'm old? I have cancer. I've had enough. The only thing that's holding me back is that I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what comes next. The chaplain says in her soothing voice, what do you think that is? The dying man looks confused. You tell me. Is atonement even possible? What does God want from me? The chaplain continues, I think it's up to each one of us to interpret what God wants. The man becomes frustrated. So people can do anything. They can rape. They can murder. They can steal. All in the name of God and it's okay. That's not what I'm saying, she clarifies. Well, what are you saying, he fires back. Because all I'm hearing is some new age, God is love, one size fits all garbage and I don't have time for this now. I understand, she tries to calm him down. No, you don't understand, he says. You don't understand. How could you possibly say that? No, you listen to me. I want a real chaplain who believes in a real God and a real hell. I hear that you're frustrated, she continues. But you need to ask yourself. No, I don't need to ask myself, he interrupts. I need answers. And all your questions and uncertainty are only making things worse. She's backpedaling now. I know you're upset. But he breaks in again, exasperated. God, I need someone who will look me in the eye and tell me how to find forgiveness because I am running out of time. I wish that this were only fiction. But the sad reality is that I've been to funerals that contained no more hope and no more gospel than this fictitious conversation. People who stood to lead people but offered no absolute truth. They offered no answers, nothing solid to stand on. 
I've heard pastors, even in this town, talk about the very resurrection of Jesus as not a literal historical event, but simply an inspiring myth that teaches us how to overcome any obstacle. Effectively turning the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, into a self-help talk. Teaching people not to look to their Savior, but to look to themselves to overcome. My friends, God's mission will only be accomplished through those who believe in a real God. Who really made the world and everything in it. People who believe that we really are sinners who one day really will die. And that there is a real heaven and a real hell and every person on earth is on a collision course with a real judgment before the King of kings and Lord of lords who really is coming back. My friends, we must believe in a real gospel, a real savior who really died and really rose from the grave to make real atonement and offer real forgiveness and the hope of real resurrection to those who repent and believe. Do you believe this? You can answer. We must. We must believe this. What we have learned is to be firmly believed. And what we have believed, we must continue believing and persevere in our faith until the end. Paul exhorts this young man, Timothy, to continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. That's the first requirement. If we as a church will fulfill our ministry, we must believe in the truth of the scriptures. But there's a second requirement. Fulfilling your ministry also requires accepting the authority of scripture. Look in verse 17. We'll actually start in 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is authoritative, and it's authoritative, first of all, because of its source. Paul says the scripture is breathed out by God. This is why in verse 15, he said that the scriptures were sacred. They're sacred because it is divine. It is from God. The Greek word here for breathed out by God is actually one word, is a compound word. It's the word for God combined with the word for breath, and it's one term. Paul probably invented it, and he's saying God breathed out Every word of scripture. We use the word inspiration in a theological sense to refer to this doctrine. But when we say inspiration, we mean more than simply the inspiration of an artist who is feeling particularly creative. You know, the way someone might say, wow, that painting, that that artist must have been so inspired by the sunset to create this. No, we mean more than that. We mean that it is God-breathed. Inspiration is the divine movement of God upon the heart and the mind of the human author who, to guide his pen so that he records the very words of God. Second Peter 1 verse 20 says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The same way that a ship was driven by the wind, The New Testament and Old Testament authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When we say that we believe the scriptures are inspired by God, we mean that we believe every word of scripture is his word. All of it. In its entirety. Old Testament and New Testament. Poetry and history. 
gospels, and prophecies. We don't believe that some is more inspired or less inspired because Paul tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And this is why we must grant highest authority to Scripture. Because when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. The early church father, Augustine, wrote, How do we hear the voice of the Spirit? A psalm is sung. It is the voice of the Spirit. A gospel is read. It is the voice of the Spirit. The Word of God is preached. It is the voice of the Spirit. As many have quipped before, if you want to hear God out loud, then open your Bible and read it out loud. You will hear the words of God, and He will speak to you. This makes the Bible different than any other book. Only the Bible is inspired in such a way. And our response to this truth must be to accept the word as God's word, to submit to the scripture as to God, to revere the word of God and hold it in highest honor and recognize its absolute authority. This is why our first question, when we as Christians make any decision, when we attempt to solve any problem, when we seek to design any plan for the church, our first question is always, well, what does the Bible say? That's the first place we go. Because it is in Scripture that God reveals His will for us. So the Scripture is authoritative because of its source, but it's also authoritative, secondly, in its function. So the Scripture is breathed out by God, but notice Paul continues that it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Each of the things that Paul says Scripture is profitable for are these verbs that imply authority. To teach is to tell someone what to believe, to tell them what is true, to tell them what is real, to tell them what is right. You can't do that without authority. Reproof and correction imply authority as well. It means using the Scripture to confront sin and to correct behavior. In a negative sense. And then positively, Paul continues, the scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. It tells us how to live. Each of these things imply authority. Each of these things are an exercise of authority. But notice the authority to teach, the authority to reprove and correct, the authority to train people in righteousness does not lie in the speaker. The authority is in the message. It's in the message. It's in the truth of scripture. But we all know from experience in our own hearts and also from observing the world we live in that not everyone always wants God's authoritative teaching. Not everyone always wants to be reproved or corrected or instructed. Look in chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. Paul says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves Teachers to suit their own passions. You see what's happened there? There's been an exchange of authority. Exchanging God's authoritative word for what we want. The authority of our own preferences. The authority of our own ideas. The authority of our feelings. Teachers to suit their own passions. He says they will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. That's the world we live in. And we have to guard against our own hearts because that is our sinful tendency as well. But if we neglect the truth of Scripture, 
If we exchange the authority of God's word for something that is supposedly better, we are actually dismissing not just the Bible, we're dismissing God himself. We cannot trade divine wisdom for worldly expertise. We cannot trade divine spiritual power for impotent human techniques. We cannot trade the sharp sword of scripture for the accommodating ideas of culture. We cannot trade the solid foundation of the word for the shifting sands of secular ideas and philosophies. No, we must be those who embrace the scriptures as the authoritative word of God, who eagerly sit under the teaching of the word, who willingly receive the reproof and the correction that comes from the scripture. We must be those who give ourselves to being trained in righteousness and instructed through the word. If we're going to fulfill our ministry, we need to first of all believe in the truth of scripture, but we need to second of all accept the authority of scripture. It comes from God and it teaches and trains and forms us. That leads us to a third requirement. Fulfilling your ministry, thirdly, requires embracing the sufficiency of of scripture. So we believe in the inerrancy and inspiration of scripture. It's true and it comes from God. But we also need to embrace the sufficiency of scripture, that it is enough. That God has given us what we need in his word. Paul makes an amazing statement in verse 17, chapter 3. He says that the scripture has been breathed out by God and it's profitable for all these things, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. I think this is an amazing statement by Paul. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, God breathes this phrase through the mind, through the logic, through the pastoral heart of Paul, and through his pen, to communicate to us that the effect that the word is to have on people is to make us complete. That's what Scripture does. When it's rightly proclaimed and understood and received, It's everything we need to become mature and complete. You see, the Christian life is a life of change. It starts with a radical change. When when we are born again, converted, God makes us alive. We are a new creation in Christ. We see that in chapter 3, verse 15. The scriptures make us wise for salvation. So in hearing the gospel, the truth of scripture, we come to a new beginning, new life in Christ. But that's just the beginning. This new life continues with growth and change. This is called sanctification. It's spiritual maturities. We are made more and more into the image of Christ. Romans 8, 29 tells us that that is God's purpose for us. To conform us into the image of his son. To change us. And he does this through the ministry of the spirit and the word. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. God has been answering that prayer. And he has been answering it through the recording and the preserving and the preaching and the studying of his word. As we are taught and reproved and corrected and instructed, we are made mature and complete. And the Bible is all we need for that. You don't need something else. You need the ministry of the Spirit through the Word as it's preached and taught and studied in the context of the church. This is what we need to become mature and complete. There's not an additional book that has like Christianity, you know, level two. 
This is level one and level two and level three, all the way till we get to glory. He says that it makes us complete, but it not only brings us to maturity, but it also equips us for every good work, Paul says. Not just some good works, not just most good works, but every good work. We are not just made mature through the ministry of the word. We are made useful. We're made useful. The word equips us to do the will of God. 2 Peter 1.3 says that we have everything we need for life and godliness. We have everything we need to live and act in a way that reflects the character of our Savior. The scripture is sufficient. It's enough. So here's the question. If this is true, if salvation and maturity and equipping for ministry comes through the proclamation and the application of Scripture, then what else could we possibly need? Do we really need the latest psychological insights from the world? Do we really need the world's philosophical lenses? Do we need their analytical tools? Do we need big personalities to be in leadership? Do we need dynamically gifted leaders in the way that the world measures people? Do we really need a big budget? Do we need certain programs in our church? Do we need a church building? What is it that we need in order to fulfill our ministry? What is it that we need to see sinners saved and those who are saved grown to maturity and equipped for every good work? We need the ministry of the word. It's enough. It's enough. We need to hear it preached. We need to sing it. We need to pray it. We need to study it. We need to live by it because God uses his word to mature and equip his people. I love Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, meaning complete and whole. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward." That's what God has given us in his word. It's enough. It meets our needs. It is valuable. It is precious. It is satisfying. It is sufficient. We not only believe in the inspiration and the inerrancy of scripture that is breathed out by God, completely true without error, but we also believe in the sufficiency of scripture, that it is enough, that it is enough. That's going to shape the way we do ministry here. It's going to shape the way that we do things, the types of programs we design, the types of activities we engage in. We believe the word is enough. So fulfilling our ministry requires believing the truth of Scripture, accepting the authority of Scripture, and embracing the sufficiency of Scripture. A final requirement we find in this text, number four. Fulfilling your ministry requires proclaiming the message of Scripture. Proclaiming the message of Scripture. This is verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. 
Paul lays this serious charge at the feet of Timothy. He stacks up the most weighty realities he can think of in order to underline just how essential this command is. So think about the the groundswell here, the the building momentum. He says in verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. He charges him in the presence of God, in the presence of the creator, the great I am, the one who dwells in unapproachable light. Before God, Timothy, you must perform this duty. He charges him in the presence of Jesus Christ, the one who is the judge of the living and the dead, the one who evaluates with a penetrating gaze, the one who weighs our every thought and motive and deed. Timothy must perform his duty as one who will be evaluated by Christ. He charges him by his appearing and his kingdom. With the full weight of God's glory, with the power and authority and victory of the returning Christ. This inevitable destination of history. He says, in light of this, Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. This command flows directly out of what the word is inspired by God, and flows out of what the Word does. It's profitable to bring us to spiritual maturity. So if we believe that the Scripture has divine authority, if we believe that it is sufficient and effective, then we will also believe that the preaching of the Word is necessary. It's necessary. It must be heard, which means it must be proclaimed. This happens formally in the context of the church. But it also happens informally in our lives. But this needs to mark every aspect of the life of this church. Preaching will always be central to the growth and health of the church. And it is therefore to be the primary task of Christ's under-shepherds. Those who have been granted the privilege and the responsibility of shepherding God's flock. This means that pastors must devote themselves more to the ministry of the word than to any other task. A pastor is not just the chief of marketing for the local brand. A pastor is not simply a project manager who makes sure that all the administrative things happen that need to happen. The primary calling is to preach the word. This means that our gatherings on Sundays are to be centered on the preaching of the word. The sermon is the main course in the meal. Preaching takes priority even over the corporate singing of the church because we need to hear from God far more than he needs to hear from us. Preaching is to have the central place, even above the symbolic acts of baptism and communion, because it's the preaching of the word that explains the beauty and the truth of these two ordinances. It is the ministry of the word that proclaims explicitly the gospel that these two things are to symbolize, you know, baptism and communion. We must preach the word exclusively. We don't just get up and talk about personal stories. We're not here to share cultural insights. We're not here to give talks on pop psychology or to to give historical anecdotes. Not here to deliver a philosophical discourse or to share a therapeutic talk. We're here to preach the word. This means that we must preach the word faithfully. Not just the parts we like. Not just the parts that are popular. Not just the easy parts, we're to preach all of it, every word, in its entirety, thorns and all. 
It means we must preach the word consistently, not just once through. We can't just say, yeah, we did that verse one time 12 years ago. No, we preach through the word again and again, verse by verse, book by book, cover to cover, concordance to maps, searching out its depths and marveling at its height. We must preach the word systematically. We don't simply preach topics and themes. We don't just sample the scriptures to find some quotes to sort of footnote the things that I already want to say. No, we preach the word for the message itself that it has to say. It means we must preach the word constantly. In the songs that are sung, we proclaim the word. In the prayers that we pray, we echo the word. Scripture is to saturate our counseling and our encouragement. It permeates our conversations with one another. It means that we must preach the word at every opportunity, not just on Sunday morning, but at funerals and at weddings, at graduation ceremonies, at school chapels. At every point, Paul says, in season and out of season, to those who want to hear it and are in the mood, and to those who aren't, we proclaim God's word. Fulfilling our ministry requires that we believe the truth of Scripture, that we accept the authority of Scripture, that we embrace the sufficiency of the Scripture, and we proclaim the message of Scriptures. And let me tell you, this takes more than just a pastor to do this work in church. This takes the whole body. If we, collectively, are going to fulfill our ministry, then these are values that each and every one of us must be fully and wholeheartedly committed to. We must be united in our belief in the truth of Scripture. We must be united in our submission to the authority of Scripture. We must be united in our confidence that Scripture is sufficient. And we must be united in our efforts to proclaim the message of Scripture to those near and far. So will you? Will you believe in this truth? Will you accept the authority of Scripture without question, without resistance? Will you embrace its sufficiency? Will you turn to God first? Or will you go looking other places for the help, the wisdom, the techniques that you think you need? Will you engage in proclaiming the word of God, believing that it is the power of God to salvation, believing that it's able to make people wise to salvation, believing it's able to bring believers to maturity and equip them for every good work? Will you expect nothing less in this church than faithful biblical preaching and hold your teachers and those who preach in this pulpit music stand will you hold us to that standard will you seek to be the kind of person who knows and applies and shares God's word because this is this has to be in the DNA of our church this can't just be something that I think is important we all need to embrace this there are too many churches today who want something more than a ministry of the word. Churches that want something different because they've heard this before. There are those who want something other than the straightforward ministry of the word. There's too many pastors who think that the secret to a fruitful ministry is not found in the pages of scripture. It's found somewhere else. There are too many Christians perhaps some even in this room, 
who don't know what the word says, and who are not willing to submit to its authority. But 2 Timothy challenges us to be different. 2 Timothy has a list of contrasts. In chapter 3, verse 14, Paul has just talked about what people are like in the world. People who oppose the truth, in verse 8. Who are corrupted in mind, who are disqualified. He says that evil people, in verse 13, and imposters will go on from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. But here's the contrast. But as for you. We can't take our cues from those around us. We cannot grow weary or discouraged when it feels like there's very few people that have this conviction. We need to be willing to swim against the current. And even when it seems that other churches, other ministries, other people have found all of this help and all of the secret to success in something else, we need to keep our faith firmly fixed in the truth of God's word. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. I charge you, preach the word. In chapter 4, we already looked at what the world is like. People don't endure sound teaching. They have itching ears and accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passions. They turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into the myth, into myths. But as for you, again, here's this contrast. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. May we be a people who give more than just a nod, more than simple lip service to the idea of sola scriptura. By God's grace, may we be a people who seek to live out daily, weekly, lifelong commitment to the word of God as we seek to fulfill the ministry that he has given us in this church. That's central to who we are here at Redemption Hill. And it's central to what we're trying, what we're trying to do in glorifying God by being and making disciples of Jesus. We're fully committed to the authority and the truth and the sufficiency, the necessity of Scripture. I know many of you share those convictions, and that's why you're here. That encourages me. I know that when I stand here to preach and when others stand to preach here at Redemption Hill, that there are many in this room who will give a full-throated amen to everything that is said. Even when it hurts, they embrace it and say, yes, I want conviction. I want to be corrected. But perhaps there's some of you that are a little bit uncomfortable with that. I hope that you'll consider today the place Scripture should have. And if there's some of you who maybe have grown a little bit indifferent or bored, I hope that you will be excited about the ministry of the Word, that you will eagerly pray that God would use the proclamation of His Word to do the work of the ministry. And I hope that you will give yourselves to participating in it. Let's bow and pray together. God, as we read this charge from a faithful apostle to a young pastor, we recognize that within this text, there is an exhortation for us as well. I pray that you would fill us with a strong desire to obey, that you would fill us with the strength that comes through your spirit to be faithful to the task at hand. God, we thank you for the gift of your word. As Stephen shared with us earlier, that you have revealed yourself to us. What a treasure. Lord, help us to be receptive, to be good stewards of the truth we've been entrusted with. And Lord, I pray that you would use the ministry of the word in this church. 
Use it to make those who are lost wise to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would use the ministry of the word to bring us all to maturity, to completion, to make us like your son, Jesus Christ, and to equip us to do everything that you've called us to do. Lord, fill our hearts with these convictions. Strengthen us to be faithful. We thank you for the clarity of this call and simply ask that you would enable us to obey. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.